Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, it is currently 10.30 p.m. on Thursday, February 17th, and I'm not sure if you've heard, but we have a Blister Summit that is launching this Sunday afternoon. So we have a few things still going on here, a few logistics that we're taking care of. So we're going to do a bit of a different episode of Gear 30 this week. And mostly what I want to do today, well, there's two things. What I want to do to get started here is basically give you all an update on some of the panel session conversations that we're going to be having at our Blister Summit and tell you a bit more about some of the particular people that we're gonna have on these panel sessions. Now, as all of you know, we can hardly say that the world is like back to normal or anything. So there have been a number of moving parts as we are assembling this you know, whole Blister Summit thing. So first of all, if you've been living under a rock and you don't know what the Blister Summit is, go to the link in the show notes of this episode where it says Blister Summit, click on that, or go to the navigation bar of our website, blisterreview.com, where it says Blister Summit, and you will find all the information there. And folks, as you're gonna hear just from the panel sessions that we're gonna be talking about here, there's gonna be a lot of really cool conversations and a lot of really cool people descending upon Mount Crested Butte starting this Sunday. So come be a part of this, come ask questions, come ski with a number of these incredible athletes and product designers and company founders and the like, you can find a complete list of all the brands that will be at the summit on the information page for the Blister Summit. So take a look. We've got Summit A kicking off. The welcome session is Sunday evening at like 5.30, I believe. And then we got three days on snow followed by three evenings of these panel sessions that I'm going to tell you about. Then Summit B, the welcome session for Summit B starts Thursday, February 24th. And then we're on snow the next three days with two panel sessions every evening. So let me tell you a bit more about some of those panel sessions. To kick off both of our summits, A and B, the first thing we're going to do is have some of our Blister reviewers um, talk about their approach to testing gear and some tips or tricks or practices that we all use to try to really assess what a ski or a ski boot does and how we get clarity about if we personally happen to like it. So that's what we're going to be doing for the first session for both Summit A and Summit B. Okay, Second panel session at Summit A is going to be a session on bindings, ski bindings. And we're going to be talking quite a bit actually about alpine bindings. But if we have time, we're going to sneak in some conversation about AT bindings as well. Joining us on this panel session is one of Solomon's primary bindings designers. And this is interesting because Solomon has just introduced a new Alpine binding called the Strive. And, you know, 
Alpine bindings don't get talked about all that much. And so we're going to use this occasion for the introduction of this new binding to let Solomon explain why they've done what they've done. And then joining the conversation are going to be our very own blister reviewer, Paul Forward, who is also a lead heli guide for Chugach Powder Guides, and Chris Davenport, Red Bull athlete, Chris Davenport, former racer, current backcountry skier and guide, and an absolutely badass ski mountaineer too. So Chris has kind of done it all in the ski world, and I think it's going to be really interesting to have him weigh in and tell us about some of his particular preferences and maybe some of the things he actually doesn't care that much about when it comes to bindings or maybe in particular alpine bindings. So bindings, we're going to chop it up and get into it. Then on February 22nd, we're going to have a panel session with K2 athlete McKenna Peterson. We're going to actually have Chris Davenport back for this panel session. And then Icelandic Skis own Julian Carr. So I've been talking quite a bit with Chris and McKenna and Julian about some of the topics that are currently sort of near and dear to their own hearts. And I think, well, first of all, these are just three really interesting and smart people in addition to being great skiers. And so I think we are going to have a really interesting conversation with them. Now, for our second panel session of February 22nd, we're talking about ski design. I am really looking forward to this one too. We have Cyrus Schenk, the founder of Renowned Skis, will be in Crested Butte on this panel. And any longtime listeners of Gear 30 or readers of Blister will know that we think that Renown is producing probably the most unique feeling ski in the world with their non-Newtonian polymers. So we're going to have Cyrus talk about that. And maybe we're also going to have some questions from our other panelists. Maybe they'll have some questions for Cyrus. We're also going to have Jed Geiser, head ski designer for K2. And as some of you maybe know, Jed Geiser was the first podcast I ever recorded in my entire life. Episode number one of the Blister podcast. I had no idea what I was doing. The audio is really not good. So I don't know. Don't go listen to it. But Jed was good then. And Jed is still good now. So we're excited to have him in Mount Crested Butte and on this panel. We've also got Jake Stevens from Rosignol. A number of you probably watched the brand lineup video that I did with Jake for last year's summit. I really like talking skis and ski boots with Jake and also turns out I like skiing with Jake. So he's going to be on it too. And rounding out the panel is going to be Mike McCabe from Folsom Custom Skis. We had Mike on some panel sessions last year at the Blister Summit. So I really like this mix and we're going to have fun chopping it up. And I should say here, we are sending out today, maybe it will have been sent by the time you hear this podcast, a dedicated Blister newsletter where we're going to have these panel sessions laid out and who is participating in them. But you are going to have an opportunity, if you subscribe to our newsletter, to submit some questions and you're going to be able to direct them to particular panel sessions and to particular panelists. So, you know, at these live in-person panel sessions, yes, 
our audience is going to have an opportunity to ask questions. But for those of you who won't be at the summit this year, you can reply to the newsletter we're sending out and ask some of your own questions. And we'll do our best to try to work some of those in. Because again, we've got some pretty impressive people out at this summit. Ask your questions. Okay, February 23rd, we are doing a panel dedicated to Blister Labs. Now, you've already heard my Gear 30 episode that I did with Dr. Jenny Blacklock, where we talk about Blister Labs and Jenny's own background and what we're doing with this thing. But we're using this occasion, well, one, to talk more about Blister Labs in front of a bunch of people that are going to be out here from the snow sports world. And it's going to be fun to see what questions some product managers and product designers and athletes have for us here. But you're also going to get introduced to Greg Vanderbeek, Sean Humbert, Lauren Cooper, and Jenny Blacklock is going to also be on this panel. We are going to talk more about some of their own backgrounds, and we're going to go a bit more in depth about some of the initial projects that we're going to be working on here at Blister Labs and what we kind of have next on our radar. So Greg, Sean, Jenny, and Lauren are incredibly impressive, and I'm looking forward to introducing everyone at the summit to them, you know, but later we're going to put out a video that even those of you who can't be at the summit, you're going to get to see that and you're going to see for yourself just how impressive of a crew this is. Okay, then the last panel session for Summit A, we're doing Summit Recap, where attendees and vendors, we're going to kind of get a sense of how'd this go? What did people think? And we're also going to make this kind of a, we're calling it an AUA, Ask Us Anything, where if for some reason people want to ask me or maybe Paul Forward or Lou Coppa or Kristen Sinod or something like that, um, whatever questions you might have for some of us, uh, that will be an opportunity for our folks to do that. So AUA, ask us anything. Okay, Summit B. We are going to launch Summit B on February 25th with another edition of How We Review Gear. I'm just going to have three other Blister reviewers up there with me. So they will be talking to our Summit B attendees about some of the tips, tricks, and practices that our people use as they are attempting to evaluate equipment. And hopefully that helps some Summit participants think a little more clearly about all this new gear that they're going to get on and figure out, you know, what they think of it. Then we've got a panel on ski boot design. And joining me for that is Tom Petrowski from K2, Christoph Lentz from Fisher. He is Fisher's product manager of ski boots. And then, and I think this is a bit of an interesting wrinkle, we're having Greg Klein, who is the owner of Willie's Ski Shop in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, and we did a Gear 30 podcast with Greg. You can go back and find that episode. But Greg was a former collegiate skier. And I believe I have this right. He was on a national champion winning CU Boulder ski team. Greg has also had just an entire life in the ski industry. He has done a lot of work in ski boot development and provided a lot of feedback and Greg runs a ski shop where they're selling hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ski boots to real live customers every single season. So I think 
bringing Greg's perspective in alongside of a couple of, you know, boot nerds like Tom and Kristoff, I think is going to make for a really interesting mix of kind of design philosophy questions mixed in with some very real world responses and feedback, you know, because Greg is getting that feedback every single day. Okay, moving on. We have another panel I'm really excited about. It's called Backcountry Safety and Safety Equipment. And on this panel, we have BCA, Backcountry Access founder, Bruce Edgerly. He is going to be joined by Solomon athlete and incredible skier, Drew Peterson, who, by the way, has released a remarkable film called Ups and Downs that we're going to put a link to in the show notes to this episode, but you should absolutely check this film out if you aren't familiar with Drew's story, and then you're going to understand why we are so excited to have Drew as part of this conversation on backcountry safety and safety equipment. We also have joining us Megan Payton, who is just a veteran of the ski industry. Megan has been a ski patroller. She currently is the snow safety director for the Grand Traverse, which takes place between Crested Butte and Aspen. And Megan is a lead guide for Irwin Guides. So she is right here in Crested Butte. Everybody in the game has a ton of respect for Megan. And I'm really excited to having Megan with her perspective and all the different ways that she has been thinking about and practicing snow safety, given her background. I think she's going to be an excellent addition to this conversation. And then we're also thinking that we're going to have an avalanche forecaster joining us for this panel session. Somebody maybe you've heard once or twice on past Blister podcasts, but um, we'll see about that. Just waiting for, you know, the final, final confirmation. But anyway, I think this is going to be a great conversation that brings into the mix questions about the current state of Avi gear and safety equipment, and then just getting in some perspectives from people who spend a lot of time in the backcountry and people who are responsible for the safety of people and groups uh, traveling in the backcountry. And let's see where we're living with respect to all these things. Okay, then our next session that day is an athlete panel session we're doing with Dina Star athlete Sander Hadley and. If you don't know Sander, go do a YouTube search for Sander Hadley. I used to describe Sandler as like if the Incredible Hulk skied, well, he would look like Sander. Sander is a beast. He goes hard. He goes strong. He also wrote me and was just like, dude, I love Crested Butte. So I just can't wait to watch Sander go probably destroy this mountain. I'm looking forward to that. He's also a great freaking guy. And so we're really excited to have him out here and to have him on this panel session. Okay. We also have joining us Johnny Collinson. Johnny, an amazing skier in his own right, you know, but also somebody who has been dealing with a string of injuries uh, over the course of several years now. And so I think it's going to be great having Johnny here in Mount Crested Butte, but also I think he's going to have a very interesting perspective to share with the rest of us. Also on this panel, absolute big mountain legend, 
and an OG of big mountain skiing, Wendy Fisher. We're very excited to have Wendy on this. And also, fun fact, Wendy's going to be out skiing with us every day of the summit. So you're not only going to have a chance to hear one of the absolute legends of big mountain skiing talk on this panel, you're going to be able to probably go ski some laps with her too. And I just actually did that recently. Wendy's super fun to ski with. She's just a really cool person, super down to earth. We're excited to have her in on this panel session. And then finally, we're making Drew Peterson do double duty on February 26th because we're going to have Drew weigh in on this backcountry safety and safety equipment panel. And then we're just going to like, you know, put a cold, wet towel on the back of his neck, give him like a, a, a energy shot or something, and then get him right back out there on this athlete panel. So very excited to have Drew join Sander, Johnny Collinson, and Wendy Fisher on this next panel. Okay. Then for day three of the summit, February 27th, we're doing a session called Women in the Ski Industry. And what we want to do here is bring together some people who have very interesting and different backgrounds in the ski industry and have them basically give us a bit of a state of the union on how we think things are going in our ski industry. Where has progress been made? Where are we still way, way behind on where we should be? We have joining us Kara Williard, our blister reviewer and incredibly good boot fitter. Kara is going to be bringing her perspective as a boot fitter to this conversation. We have Luis Lintelac, a.k.a. Wheezy. I don't know how to sum up Wheezy other than she's a wildly kick-ass skier and mountain biker and has been working in different capacities in the ski industry. And I promise Wheezy is going to have some very interesting things to say here. Then we also have Shearston Klein, who is the co-owner of Willie's Ski Shop, but also the founder of Winter Divas. And I'm going to let Shearston talk more about the work that Winter Divas has been doing. If you want to ask the question about how are we doing as an industry in terms of women in the ski industry and where are we today versus where we've been, I'm not sure that there's really somebody better than Shearston. So we're excited to have her join. And then finally, the last session, we're doing another AUA where we will give our Summit B participants a chance to ask us anything. And also, I, I know I'm not going to be able to resist. I'm going to be asking Summit participants just some of their thoughts about the three and a half event we just had and you know what they like. And I just want to hear some of their perspectives. So we'll do a bit of a summit recap in addition to that, ask us anything. So anyway, that's our lineup. We're excited. This is a great group and we're looking forward to getting this thing going. So again, there's still time for you to sign up either for Summit A or Summit B. Summit A we go on snow this coming Monday morning, but the welcome session is Sunday evening. But Summit B kicks off, that's welcome session Thursdays, February 24th. And then we are on snow Friday, Saturday, and Sunday after that. So that's what we've got. Okay, on that note, I need to get back to work. And so what we are gonna now do I actually want to repost a conversation that we just dropped earlier this week over on our Off the Couch podcast. 
because it was an incredible conversation and I loved it. And if you are a any kind of self-respecting gear nerd, well, that means you're also a design nerd. And on our Off the Couch podcast, I had a conversation with Dave Dombro and Kevin Fallon. These two are an incredible pair. They have been working at the highest levels of design and innovation at some of the biggest companies in the world, companies like Nike and Under Armour and Puma, and working in product categories like Nike basketball and Nike soccer. And actually, Dave Dombro was the designer of the Curry One, Steph Curry's first signature shoe. So, These guys just bring an absolute ridiculous wealth of design experience with them. And they've done something really interesting and started this new company that you're about to hear about. Again, just any fan of design, you're going to dig this. Uh, So we have gone ahead and reposted that conversation. That's what follows us here. But folks, if you haven't been listening to our Off the Couch podcast, I got to tell you, we do four different podcasts around here, and Off the Couch is absolutely one of my favorites. We just end up having really interesting conversations with runners and race event directors and the like, and now we are starting to move in and having more conversations over on Off the Couch about shoe design. And so, I don't know, I think if you're a fan of Gear 30 or the Blister podcast, I've got a really strong hunch that you would enjoy our off-the-couch podcast conversations too. So check those out. And to give you one example, here's an off-the-couch episode that we just published a few days ago. So if you already listened to it, I guess our work here is done. If you haven't listened to it, seriously, do yourself a favor and check this out. Dave and Kevin are exceptional. And you're going to want to know them and have the opportunity to hear these two talking design. So that is what we have for you. Thanks, everybody. Can't wait to see a number of you at our Blister Summit in just a couple days. Again, there's still time. Come see us. This thing's going to be good. Information is all up to date on the navigation bar on our website. So you can go check that out where it says Blister Summit. And uh, that's all I got. All right. Bye, everybody. Talk to you soon. Have a great weekend. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, we have got a terrific episode for you today. My guests are Dave Dombro and Kevin Fallon, who are the co-founders of Speedland, which is a hyper-performance trail running shoe company based in Portland, Oregon. Now, the first thing I want to say is that for anybody who is interested in design of running shoes, yes, but really of shoes in general or really any products, I think you are going to love this episode because Dave and Kevin have some serious chops when it comes to product design. They have worked for, well, most of the largest brands in the athletic shoe space. And now at Speedland, they are setting out to design these, as I said, hyper-performance shoes where their very clear focus is not on hitting certain price targets, but rather to try to design the ultimate shoes 
to the best of their abilities, regardless of the cost. So in this conversation, we talk a ton about their own incredibly interesting backgrounds. We talk about product design and why they decided to go so specifically into the trail running market. And well, we're going to see whether by the end you're done listening to Dave and Kevin talk about what they're up to. If in fact, you think that their first model, the SLPDX, and its accompanying $375 price tag actually makes sense to you. And with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Dave and Kevin. Here we go. Well, I'm very happy to be here with Dave and Kevin. I think to get us started, Dave, let's just see if you can answer the question, what is Speedland? Well, Speedland was born out of the idea of building a hyper-performance trail brand, um, but really taking a no-compromise approach. Uh, And so what that means is that we kind of maybe did the opposite of the industry in many ways and just built the best of the best at every turn in order to get to something um, in the trail space that we hadn't, uh, you know, didn't ever see. Let's stay on this notion of no compromise, right? Because frankly, that sounds like something that pretty much every brand would, you know, tends to say at some point, whether it's about everything they're doing or given models or whatever. So let me push you a little further on that. What does it mean for you to say, we really set out to design products with no compromise? Well, I mean, I think when you look at the industry, Projects basically start um, across the board in a similar way. They get a, a brief with which has you know what you need for the product, and within that brief, they also have uh, what's called an FOB, which is kind of the price target that you have to hit. Uh, we didn't we didn't really have that. Uh, we never had an FOB. We never had a price target. We just wanted to build the best um, best of the best, and we looked at all the performance attributes. You know, and we can get into this later, but whether it's fit or traction or cushion. And we just wanted to optimize each one of these areas and partner with the best people um, that we knew in the industry to get to that. So that's really, when we're talking about no compromising, we're talking about really building the best of the best and not trying to hit a certain price point, just trying to get to the optimum, um, I guess, expression for that, for that consumer, for that athlete. Okay. And I think a lot of our conversation here today is going to then be sort of unpacking everything you've just kind of said. I think what I want to do now is go to Kevin. Kevin, when did you first meet Dave? We met at Nike. We were both working in Nike basketball. Um, I had been at Nike a little longer uh, previously in the soccer footwear design group and moved into the innovation team in basketball. And Dave was designing inline product for basketball. So we met there. And uh, I think, you know, at that time at Nike, design and basketball and that culture was pretty special. And we, we got to travel and do some really interesting things there and, and learned uh, 
quite a bit. I think both of us were, were still in that steep part of our learning curve and footwear, and we were surrounded by great people from which we could learn and develop. And um, again, the travel experiences and things. Uh, so it was a, a pretty unique time. And for me, it was the first time working in innovation. So it's a little different than the inline kind of seasonal products. You're, you're looking at d- developing new platforms or helping transition a new Zoom airbag into the inline team and find the right aesthetic and, and functional elements combined together. Um, so it was, it was a great learning experience and that was, uh, that was our first meeting. What year is this-ish when you and Dave first meet? Yeah, 2002, 2003. Yeah, yeah. somewhere in there. <laughs> okay, yep. and how long had you each been at Nike at that point? Well, I, Kevin, you'd already been there a few years. I started there the spring of 2000. Okay. Sorry, I had started in 1997, so I was th- there about three years. 1997, as a kid who grew up in Chicago, I can't think of anything interesting happening in the world of basketball at Nike around 97. Oh, oh wait, the Bulls dynasty. It, uh, right, right. It, it, was an, it was a crazy time and working design was all on the fourth floor of the Michael Jordan building. And I mean, it was an extraordinary time and I was extremely fortunate to kind of stumble into that and, uh, you know, find a career this many years later uh, as a result. It's pretty remarkable. This whole podcast could take a hard right (laughs) right now. (laughs) And we just just revisit, yeah, the uh, sort of 96 to 98 years. Yeah, wow. I'm going to exercise a lot of self-control right now, actually. Um, (laughs) So let's then back up even further. I mean, this is already really interesting. And I'd love to hear each of you talk about your own backgrounds, maybe from growing up and education wise, you know, what you were studying, what, maybe what sports you were into, and then how the hell you both end up at Nike. So Kevin, you want to go first there? Sure. Well, that's a lot to cover and I'll try to keep it brief. I grew up in Minnesota, a suburb of Minneapolis and, and a public school kid played in all kinds of sports, football, baseball. Um, and then, uh, you know, I went, I, I was into anything that burned gasoline, basically. I loved cars and planes and boats and jet skis and all of that stuff and wanted to get closer to that type of stuff. And I thought the way to do it was through engineering. Um, and I had reasonably good grades in school and got into a good engineering school and went to Brown University and it shares a campus with the Rhode Island School of Design. So about halfway through engineering school, I, I took a class at RISD and kind of had my eyes open to a different world. Uh, for some reason, I, I wasn't exposed or didn't really think design was a kind of career path or know about it until that point. And um, so I finished this engineering school, still focused kind of on cars, did a formula SAE project while I was at Brown and, you know, was still very much in that zone. Did product design school at Art Center, you know, basically after Brown got, got into Art Center in Pasadena, California. So flew across the country and um, re- retrenched there. Whole, totally different cultural experience, of course, and also different school experience. You know, Art Center has no sports teams and has no dorms. And it's a, it's a nine to four job and it is as competitive as a job. And I loved every minute of it though. It was, it was difficult and stressful and wasn't particularly healthy for me at that point, but the, the drawing and learning to do all the stuff I wanted to do and it was amazing. So, um, 
coming out of art center i had i had a roommate at art center uh kevin hoffer who uh is still at nike and did internships while he was at art center and just couldn't say enough good things about nike and doing footwear and i saw the projects he was working on i was like oh that's kind of cool interesting i didn't really realize there was that much in shoes and and he planted the seed i would say and so when i graduated art center he immediately went up to portland and had a job waiting for him and he said hey there's openings come on up and interview you know and and i did and it's hard not to be blown away when you see the campus at nike and and uh, you know uh, they were looking for someone for soccer and uh, i hadn't played soccer but I had the engineering background that I think I tried to play up that I have a little technical side in addition to the, the other things. And they took a chance on me and, and it was a, you know, life, life-changing experience, you know, to, to kind of get thrown in. And, and soccer was just a wonderful experience for me because it really was a great mix of technical problem solving and things that you could lean into with a little engineering, but it still had to look great and be a, a commercial global product at the end of the day so um that that's a too long of an answer but that's what got me into nike and then you know there's a series of steps uh, through the career that landed us here which we can get into later but that's that's uh covers it all you know guys before we hit the record button i made a joke about how kevin was the nerd and dave was the cool one Dave, I take it back. Kevin is the cool one. I know we haven't given you a chance to talk yet, but I'm pretty in on I'm pretty in on Kevin here. And I don't I don't whatever you're about to say, I don't think is gonna be cooler than what Kevin just said. I'm just being honest. So we'll, but, we'll see what I can do. Let's see what you got. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh I grew up in San Diego. Um that's already cooler. But uh, mm-hmm. just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, then, it's um, cooler than Minneapolis. But then, uh, yeah, I was, uh, you know, similar, played three sports through through high school, ran cross country, basketball, baseball. Ended up first going to Wake Forest, kind of, and partly because I think I was such a basketball fanatic. Um, not to necessarily play there, um, but just uh, it was a huge uh, basketball school at the time. That was Tim Duncan years. Yeah. and. Uh, you're into basketball uh they were a top contender anyway realized uh though that um i wanted to do design um i had always you know been a builder and an artist of sorts growing up kind of happened upon this school art center uh in pasadena the same school (laughs) that uh, kevin had gone to and uh so attended art center as well in pasadena and focused on transportation design you can see some overlapping stories here uh, transportation design and, uh, and, and, and was always interested in footwear. I was a, you know, kind of a a basketball shoe fanatic growing up, you know? Uh, and so when I graduated, I was kind of split between transportation and footwear design. Um, wasn't sure which direction I was going to go. I should back up that halfway through my schooling, what kind of got me more on the footwear design side was I did a, a long internship with Solomon, um, the ski company, but also, building a lot of trail running shoes at the time. Uh, and so worked in Boulder, Colorado for a while. They had a satellite office there and really started to learn a lot about footwear. So when I graduated, I had quite a, quite a bit of uh, footwear in my portfolio and went straight from, um, similar to Kevin, went straight from Art Center to Nike um, and went straight to Nike basketball. And so that's the basketball route started coming because that's the group I really wanted to be in when I went to Nike and I uh, was fortunate enough to be able to be in that group. So straight out of Art Center uh, to Portland, Oregon to, uh, well, to Beaverton, Oregon, to be specific, uh, 
to to Nike, and um, you know that's where Kevin and I met. And I was at Nike about three and a half years, and then a series of other jobs. And we can talk about that how Kevin and I kind of overlapped, you know, for the years ongoing after mm-hmm. that. <laughs> huh. So one of the things I'm wondering about is you're like, and then I just got a job at Nike Basketball, and I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. you're either <laughs> amazing. Or somehow there weren't a billion people trying to get jobs in Nike basketball. You know, you think about, I don't know, I'm thinking about something like the Iowa Writers Workshop or like these elite selective programs, right? That Mm -hmm. very, very few people end up getting admitted and take your humility hats off for a second, but like help me just understand, was it like, well, we happen to have some connections or like, yeah, we actually, you know, we got into coveted positions because mm-hmm. we don't suck like what yeah what? <laughs> I, yeah i think that's, uh, that's and it's a, so like three three things i would say and kevin can jump in here too is that it's a combination of things uh back back then it was um one was i was very passionate about basketball uh so so that that was very apparent to nike two they recruited at art center so they actually came down and recruited out of the school um where we had attended so there was like one-on-one meetings being recruited out of that school. It was a, still is a very well-known uh, design school. Um, and then three, I would say it actually, I don't think what design was not as well-known um, as it is now, uh, 20, 20, 25 years ago. Um, it was definitely more of an emerging um, thing going on. So, so that, that, you know, if you put all that together, you aggregate what I just said. I mean, it, it, there was kind of, um, yes, I think we put in the time and, and made it, you know, made our path. But at the same time, there was some things that lined up, I think, a little bit better, maybe back in the day than today. What, what would you add to that, Kevin? Uh, I would just add, yeah, that they even then, though, they weren't hiring people who, who weren't talented in, in some way, I would say, yeah. you know, I mean, it was still fairly competitive. But I think Dave's right that it's a completely different animal today. And they're a different, very different company today. I think, um, you know, when you hire a lot of kids out of school, you're in an aggressive growth mode, right? Because you get a certain energy and you have to be willing to kind of put some time in and get those people up to being good designers. I mean, I know I can speak from my experience. I, would, I didn't come in as a good designer for footwear. You know, it took, it took some time. You, you got to learn the ropes and you make some missteps and company has to be in a position to to handle that you know so um and then i would say you know having a connection i i certainly had one uh good friend at school and that uh, i think helps <laughs> probably still helps today so to vouch for you you know <laughs> so you're both at nike and you what you start talking to each other kevin is in soccer but then you both end up in basketball and yeah. Tell, push yeah. the so story Kevin, forward. Yeah. Yeah. So Kevin came over from soccer into Nike basketball. Um, and he came in as, as one of um, kind of our main, and at that time, innovation was in the categories. And so he came over as one of our main innovation, um, actually as our, as the main innovation person at that time in our uh, category in basketball. I'd already been in basketball, I think probably a year and a half, couple years at that point. I think would you come in around two thousand two, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then you know we're kind of working, not necessarily together, but kind of together. You know, because he's he's basically working on stuff that's farther out. That's then gonna 
filter into the inline side that we're going to then take and kind of mold into something that's going to hit hit um, you know the floor. So it um, it's kind of a linear a linear path in some ways from innovation into inline, right? It's a feeder system. And so he's working maybe a couple, two to three years farther out um, with that information. So that's how. And then we also formed a friendship, um, you know, outside, I would say, of, of, of work to some degree. So we we had that connection inside work, but also outside of work as well. Got it. Yeah. And then and then I think we each kind of Dave left sooner to go to another brand. I stayed on at Nike for a while. So Dave was at GBMI and you can talk about that experience but i i went to puma and he was already there um so we we linked up again Um, yeah so then and then so in puma we won't dwell on it too long but i was in boston and then kevin joined and and he was in germany because puma's headquartered technically in germany so um we we then learned to work you know across an ocean really well which is a, a skill in itself to be able to kind of work, you know, across different time zones and still have a connection. So it worked out pretty well in, at Puma. And then from Puma, um, we went to Under Armour and that was kind of more of a, I guess, calculated move, you could say, because um, we knew that, you know, Kevin was going to go into innovation there and I was going to go into inline. So then we knew we had that working relationship mm-hmm. again. And then, so we spent a number of years at Under Armour, which we can get into as much as you want did you sell <laughs> yourselves as like a package deal kevin you tell the story not really no i don't think i wouldn't say we sold it so actually i think somebody else sold it as a package huh. deal a, a good a good friend of ours who is consulting and and leading the design team you have to remember uh under armor was pretty small in footwear at this time this was like 2009 or 10 we were talking about this right 2009 um nine we were recruiting and so they were maybe i don't know 50 60 million if it were mostly cleats and they were looking to grow and it was a big chance i mean we were like ooh. um one it's in baltimore which probably wasn't a place you'd pick off the map to live but two it was just a, a chance you know how or could we actually make it work you know and um i think that's where the confidence came a little bit knowing that we had this partnership and that we could you know, count on each other, really, that, you know, whatever we developed in innovation would get handled properly and, you know, make it to the market because Dave's team would be able to get it there. And I think the confidence was vice versa, that we could develop interesting stuff to support this brand. And we had similar visions for how we would do that. So that was the first kind of calculated move. And we just discovered it, you know, kind of by accident that this friend of ours had been talking to us about coming to help and he consulting at the at the time there and and he said to both of us separately you know you should come work here full time um we figured it out pretty quickly and and in london i think we were walking down the street and like uh, kind of running its course at puma there were huh. some funny leadership things going on and yeah i'm looking are you looking yeah me too <laughs> i'm talking to this person yeah me too oh cool so i mean it literally went like that as we were walking down the streets uh, of london and, you know it was it was the moment that I think we we knew we were going to do it. So this is interesting. I mean, you've name dropped, not in the pejorative sense of that, but like we're talking about obviously significant companies here. And part of me hearing you talk was curious, like 
why move? Like, why leave Nike, you know, and say go to a Puma and then why leave Puma and go to Under Armour? You just mentioned, um, well, in one case, maybe there were some leadership things where you're like, ah, a change might be refreshing. Mm -hmm. But I guess if you wouldn't mind, I'd be curious to hear each of you speak to this. Was it more about something was a little off in your present situation or was the next thing, there just was always an opportunity, whether it was a massive financial opportunity or more of a that design opportunity to like, wait, maybe they're going to give us a bit more freedom here and there's an opportunity to go do something big. Can you talk to that a little bit? I Yeah, I mean, I'll talk, I'll say, you know, my opinion on it and then Kevin can jump in too. I think the leadership thing is a big thing though that, you know, we just, Kevin kind of mentioned, but if there's... It, just in general, and I think this is maybe advice for anybody who wants to take it, is that if you don't believe in the leadership of the company that you're working for and the decisions that they're making, you might not want to be at that company anymore. And that that I've always held is a, is really something to watch because that's where the company is going, the decisions are making, and you're part of that. So that was definitely part of it. Um, in, in certain circumstances, uh, not in the, not in the early days, not in the Nike, that was a different, different thing. But, um, in the case of Under Armour, uh, I think both of us, and I'll speak for myself, saw a opportunity. Um, you had a business in footwear that, like Kevin said, was around 70 million and a company though, that had a lot of, um, levers to pull and a lot of room to grow and really, um, was building what they were going to be within footwear and, you know, saw an opportunity to be part of that. And that doesn't, you know, it doesn't come along that, um, that often, if at all. <laughs> and so I think we both saw it um, from the innovation side and the inline side is like, Hey, this is a huge opportunity. This is something that doesn't come along and we can do it together. Um, and we know we have that experience, which is um, another thing that, you know, you don't always have that relationship with somebody else to know what works. So, that's that's really what happened with Under Armour, where it was kind of the right the right time and the and the right people involved. Yeah, I mean, I, I would echo that to to answer your question. I mean, I think I think a lot of that, you know, knowing when the right time to move is or why it really stems from kind of where you are within your career and and also where you're trying to go. So, you know, I didn't expect to be at Nike for almost 10 years, you know, that was never in, in the plan. And I stayed because it was really fun and I was learning a ton and there were really great people there. And, you know, when, when some of those things changed and, you know, it got, it got to be a big, bigger, much bigger company. And, you know, I learned so much. I felt like that was my, you know, PhD in footwear one of those 10 years at Nike. And, um, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily a perfect place to say there's a variety of forces at play. Right. And, um, you know, I liked what I learned that I liked was that aggressive offense. Like I got into the soccer team and they were, you know, as Nike and soccer in 97 was pretty small. They yep. were number four or five yeah. brand. And so they were playing aggressive offense and I kind of got plunked into this, you know, well-funded, raging machine and got to kind of get a front row seat for this growth and I, I really liked it and i love the innovation thing in basketball too um and so you know when by you know 2006 nike was vying for number one in soccer and it's a very different thing at that point it's a big business and um you know i just i kind of reached the end of that path and and puma 
you know, and I would say everybody comes to that conclusion, right? And all those headhunters and all those messages that you've gotten in the past and ignored because you love your job, all of a sudden you're like, well, why don't I see what else is out there? In my case, that was a thing that came from Puma. And it was like, oh, cool, a chance to live and work overseas in Europe. And um, it was kind of a bigger role within a brand that was focused on soccer, but still trying to grow. So it, it just aligned with a lot of things that were of interest to me inside and outside of work. And, and so that's what led me there personally. And then Dave said the leadership thing was so critical. And it, they're part of a holding company. And, and it's just a very different um company and and working within that was not my favorite you know i love the people i love the lifestyle i would have stayed there a lot longer but um the, the, then the under armor opportunity came along and it was hard to hard to deny the opportunity and then personally we'd had our our son was born and we were you know looking to maybe get back in the u.s where you'd be close to the grandparents and my wife's family's in pittsburgh which is pretty close to baltimore so it actually you know suddenly became you know really solid option. And so we did it. You know, I kind of love the fact, and I also am aware of the fact we've like barely said the word running yet. We're going to get there, people just, you know, bear with us. (laughs) But given, I mean, you guys are, it's not every day that we get to have a conversation like this with people that have had your experience. And let me ask you one bit of maybe a question out of left field. As you're talking, say about Puma, This was a brand that at least for a while, and I actually don't know how much they are trying to do this currently. This was a brand that has maybe say at times tried to make a push into basketball. They haven't had maybe the kind of success at breaking into that space as I imagine they may have wanted Can you speak to that? I mean, just given your collective experience about having worked in soccer, having seen Nike go from not on the podium, you know, to number one, I I think let's just open this for a minute, if you're willing to more of that macro conversation about why is it difficult for some brands to push into a new market? Yeah. Well, I think if you step back and you said macro, so the, the entire brand, in order for something to be a success... The entire brand needs to culturally be about that sport. I really believe that. And where where it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And it's obvious. So why did Puma have, let's say, and I don't want to speak to Puma present day because we're not there. And uh, But in order for anything to work within these brands, they have to be about those sports 100%. And if they're just dabbling in it, it ultimately will not work. And they have to they have to live it basically and so that's why when you see um if you see a brand that tries to get into running let's say it's not obsessed with running as a culture and they don't live it every day and they don't have a bunch of runners running at lunch every day and it isn't going to work they're not they're not they're not a brand same thing within trail running or outdoor or um cycling or in anything really um and basketball is the same thing uh, and you know, if, if you don't, if you're not obsessing that, and that's not one of your key focuses within your strategy and within the people that are working there, um, it's just ultimately not going to work. And, and that's, you know, we've seen that, uh, Kevin and I've seen that through the years at basically every brand that we've worked for, um, that you have to be really core to what you're doing 
Um, and it's really important to us. Honestly, we haven't gotten into Speedland yet, but it's really important to us at Speedland, and it's and it's what we're about, and it's also why we're so focused on a singular uh, singular vision right now versus trying to go too broad too fast. I promise we're going to yeah. get to Speedland. You know, let's not don't don't ru- <laughs> don't rush us here, Dave. Sorry, um, <laughs> sorry. I'm eager. I'm eager to talk about Speedland. <laughs> so, you guys are at Under Armour, and now we're roughly sorry. What year are we talking about? 2010. 2010. Do you have specific shoe categories in 2010? Where okay, you guys are now both here. Welcome. Here's the category you both are working on. And then how did that evolve or did that evolve or change, you know, over your time at Under Armour? At that time, I came in as creative director of footwear. So every, every, any piece of footwear that was made and Kevin came in as basically, uh, I don't know your exact title, but it was head of innovation for footwear. <laughs> okay. So you're kind of... The- right. We're kind of we're kind of over anything that w- had anything to do with footwear. Yeah, that's what that's how we entered Under Armour. They didn't shove you off into one little corner and be like, just stay there and stare at that little corner of the wall. No, okay, no, actually, quite the opposite. Uh, in the early days of Under Armour, it was it was a really um, amazing place to work. I have to say because um, we we really had a lot of freedom to try a lot of things um, that you normally, honestly, would not be able to do at a more established uh, footwear brand like a Puma or a Nike or an Adidas. So it was a really amazing place to be as a, as a designer in those years, I would say. Would you, would you agree, Kevin? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent, you know, and it was, again, that opportunity that we saw hundred percent there, you know, and it, I can liken it a bit to my early years in Nike football in the sense that like people were willing to take chances. They wanted, they encouraged us to take chances. And there were people there who understood that was the only way Under Armour was going to win was to do things differently. And, and, you know, it was also really exciting just from a learning standpoint, you know, personally and, and kind of coinciding with the professional was, you know, there were a ton of apparel experts there. And so the ability to learn about apparel manufacturing and textiles and down to yarns and threads and treatments and things that, you know, in footwear, you don't get exposed to that level of detail. And so to have these experts around you again, um, and, and to be learning new things and then being able to apply it to footwear, like, oh, that's interesting. How would we do that? Because I think that was one of the things we saw as the opportunity. How do you take an apparel brand and make it into a footwear brand it was a total opposite of all the big footwear brands they started in footwear and maybe they do some apparel now and so that was you know part of our strategy and approach so it was you know it was a really exciting place to be for for all those reasons is it time to fast forward in the story to when maybe you two start having some casual conversations about doing something together yeah you want to start Sure. I think it's the same thing, you know, as I mentioned before, in terms of your your kind of choice or when you make uh, you're aware, let's say that the end of the course has come at a certain place. And I think it was a similar thing in Under Armour. We had accomplished quite a bit, so much and so many people had come through and left. And it was just time for us, I think, to, to make some changes. And and. Uh, you know, at the near end of that, it was definitely us talking to each other as friends and saying, 
hey, what's next? You know, and bouncing ideas off. I don't, I don't think it was immediately to we do a brand. I think it would kind of played off. Hey, what about this company? Or what do you got? What do you think about this one? And it took a little bit, but not that long to come to the conclusion that we didn't want to do another brand. We had done three big brands. We had, you know, been at the big Goliath and seen what that's like. And we've been at, you know, kind of that fun number three brand in Puma. And then we're at this, you know, underdog brand and on that steep part of the curve. I mean, it was hard to imagine learning or doing something different in another brand. And and that's, I think what we're both about. And so those conversations led into, well, what would that be? And so Speedland was just a actually pretty quick conversation, I think at its inception, because we both love the outdoors and it was pretty clear in our mind that there was an opportunity in, in the trail space, uh, both from a consumer and a product standpoint. So, um, you know, we said, Hey, we got to apply all that we've learned over these last 20 plus years, all the connections that we have, it's kind of now or never. So this is an interesting move I think you've made because we've talked about so far massive categories like soccer cleats and basketball shoes. And so like, well, currently the trail space, not quite as big as these other categories. And so I'd love to hear you speak to this. I mean, in part, if we've, you know, if we've been listening to the stories, we've heard you, you know, part of what you've done is suss out opportunities and see where there's opportunities for growth. But that still seems like a bit of a, I don't know, scary proposition, maybe stupid proposition. So I'd love to hear one of you speak to this a bit. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we both had experience on the, you know, we do talk a lot about basketball and soccer and all this other stuff, but we also, we have experience obviously doing, um, running as, as much or more experience doing running shoes as well. But the trail specifically, we saw, you know, white space there for that reason that there was a lot of growth still to be had. There were athletes doing amazing things, um, on the, on the ultra side specifically, and we thought that, you know, typically, if you look at brands, they put a lot of um, emphasis and funding and research into the R&D behind road running, but they weren't putting it behind trail running and thought, wow, why not put our efforts there where it's not being done um, by the bigger brands and see, see what we can accomplish? So that really, um, that's really one of the reasons, besides the athletes doing amazing things, is the big brands weren't putting the same attention. At least we didn't see that, uh, that they were on the road running side. And it's a different thing. It's not the same thing. They're not, you can't plug and play road running to trail running. They're, they're, they're quite different um, as far as design goes. So we, we saw an opportunity there to, to approach that. And I would add, you know, from a business standpoint, we, we had worked at big companies and those categories are large you know, we don't want to be Nike or Under Armour or Puma. You know, we want this brand to be a sustainable business and we want to, you know, make it profitable so we can earn a living and hopefully have a nice small company. But we're, we're doing this and we're doing it in a, in the way that we're doing it because we want to be able to make decisions that are right for the company that if we were, um, you know, listening to a crowd of people, we, you know, they might not make the same decisions, you know? So I think, 
I think we we look at it from just a size standpoint of like that it's a big enough market for us and the small company that we want to build in this special kind of product to to make a good company, even though to a Nike or uh, Adidas, you know, it's it's not a big category. You're absolutely right. So we think that's our advantage, actually. Okay. Well, you just said that you can't just kind of take what one may have learned working on running shoes and just sort of carry all of that over into, you know, the tech and design elements of trail shoes. So I'd love to kind of hear you get into the weeds about that. Well, we, I think hinted at it earlier, if if they didn't say it outright, we, we really broke the shoe down into the functional elements that we heard from athletes, you know, and took each of those as discrete problems. So fit super important to a trail athlete and we are strong believers that better fit is better performance it's just less wasted energy and you know obviously blisters and so on are just unacceptable you know so fit super important traction another one like you're ripping through the forest you got to have good traction so we know we got that and you know we kind of went down all these things cushioning protection um and propulsion and kind of said, how, how do we look at each one of these and apply everything we know and have learned and, and find the best suppliers? And, you know, we couldn't turn it into an innovation project. We wanted to build a brand and make products. So they also had to be commercially viable solutions and, and people that we knew or had connections to. Right. So and and um, our experience has brought all the best to us. So we connected with a lot of you know, sources that we had from the past and, um, you know, applied where we could. So, you know, we kind of landed on BOA because functionally they offer the best solution for this athlete, being able to incrementally tighten and loosen on the fly and in zones, um, which is important for the ultra athletes. You know, their feet swell, different conditions, different terrain, steep uphill, you're going to lace differently than a steep downhill. And so being able to do that on the fly, we, we know from, from feedback is, uh, you know, been a breakthrough. And that's certainly a big part of what makes the fit on our product good. And, you know, partnering with Michelin for the outsole, another big one, because they're a global rubber, rubber supplier. They're deep experts in that. And we have a selection of compounds we can choose from that really helps us optimize these products based on the terrain and what we're doing. Dave? You want to jump in, Dave? Yeah, just um, real quick. I think you just brought up BOA and Michelin. And I think one thing that's important to note, too, that maybe we do um, consciously to some degree is we we are um, runners and and, um, we are always looking at the running space, but we're also looking at other spaces, um, whether that's schema or, or um, cycling or whatever it is. And, and and I think hearing Kevin say that is like, in the case of BOA, the, the reason we, we knew the product so well is because we'd used it as, as cyclists in the past. And so mm-hmm. sometimes the best solutions are looking at adjacent um, sports and bringing that technology into running. And so uh, BOA was an example of that. And then um, Michelin as well. Um, we have a cuttable blocks technology within Michelin, uh, and that came directly from downhill uh, racing, mountain bike racing, uh, where they were cutting the the tires for certain courses. And so we thought, hey, why not bring that technology to footwear? Um, again, it's it's something simple, but it's something where you need to be looking at another industry to build that relationship and bring it in. So just uh, wanted to offer that in there. Can we stay on that for a second, Dave? You said 
what did you say? I, I just want to slow this down for people who maybe have are just smarter than me or have had more coffee than me today. But cuttable block, cuttable blocks. Yeah. So there was this cuttable blocks technology on their downhill mountain bike racing uh, tires, and they were literally doing it for specific courses. And we thought, wow, that's interesting. Why can't you bring that and cut them for specific trails? I mean, in a very pure sense, not that you necessarily would, but. And so with our technology, um, you can cut the blocks, or we say trim, trim the blocks from six millimeters in depth to three millimeters. So in a really basic sense, if you're if you have this uh, the SLPDX and you're in Southern California, and that's where 95% of your runs are going to happen, you might permanently trim those blocks to three millimeters because you're running on dry. You know, you don't need that mud, uh, that penetration. But if you're in Portland where it's traditionally going to be a little bit wet, um, you're probably going to leave them obviously at six and, uh, and go with that. So it is a one-way operation, but what's interesting is it allows us as well to customize for our athletes. So we've had athletes who, where we've customized the blocks for, you know, a run on the salt flats and then turned around and left them long for, you know, a run on a much treacherous, uh, you know, course. So it, it offers some, uh, a level of customizability that doesn't exist in the industry right now. And it came from mountain bike tires, um, directly. So I think often we're, we're always looking at different, different sports, um, which we also happen to be into personally and, and build those kind of connections. So it's just an interesting thing is if you have any designers listening that we're, we're often looking at other things, whether it's Kevin brought it up earlier, um, you know, planes and cars and, and all these other things, but we're looking for relationships and, and honestly, better ways to do things. Um, so let's talk more then about this SLPDX, right? This is the first Speedland shoe out. And I think you've already touched on some elements of it, but I should ask, when did Speedland like officially launch as a thing in the world? <laughs> it was June last year, June 2021. June 2021. Yeah, we put up the we put up the website at, on, I think, early in the month, and uh, yeah. we were accepting pre-orders at that point. And um, I think by the end of July, we were, or early August, we were fulfilling. Yeah, early August. So, so it's um, yeah, it was supposed to be. Uh, weird yeah, there were so delays we, uh, in this yeah, day we, and we, age we had a few, little, that, few huh. little shipping glitches but yeah we, imagine, we worked through it. imagine that we yeah we, we're not going to make excuses i think it's kind of everybody's heard it and nobody wants to hear any more about it but um you know the, yeah so we really haven't been in business all that long um we're still learning stuff every day and and um but it's it's been an amazing you know last six or eight months for sure you know we've been to several races and you know, we've seen our athletes multiple times in different environments. And, um, you know, again, it's it's one of those things that's a really special part of the, the job to be able to connect with that community like that. So let's talk a bit about this first shoe. You said at the very top of this conversation that you're like, we we're here to make no compromises. So you got to start somewhere and make something. So what were those conversations like in terms of, I don't know if this would be the time to use the word design brief, but like, what were you going for? Kevin? Yeah, we, well, it's funny because we had done, after we left Under Armour, we had a year off and we had done this YouTube show called Speed Hack, where we just for fun took shoes and hacked them around, tried to 
make them faster, lighter, whatever. But we were really hands-on at that point, and we were enjoying it, having fun, and we went kind of from that into, well, let's start thinking about this brand and start getting ideas together. Um, and so we, we went right into 3D, honestly. So again, we had the functional elements we were trying to solve. We knew the materials and, and you know, the families we were going to kind of go for in different areas. So we literally took Michelin mountain bike tires and we were cutting them up. And, hey, what kind of width do we want here? And we had this idea, you know, P-backs foam, for instance. People love it, right? We know it from the roadside. Not necessarily appropriate for the trail. It's so soft and it's fragile. It doesn't have great bond strength. And so we thought, well, what if we could have a sort of modern cupsole with this outsole instead and put the midsole inside? Now we get more stability around the edges from the rubber um, and we protect the P-back so it can last longer. The thing we didn't want to do is make the shoe super heavy. So again, Michelin had this super thin sidewall and that allowed us to get a different look. I mean, that aesthetic was driven by function, but it gave, gave it a really unique look and allowed us to stitch the outsole to the upper. And for us, that was really just this message of this is durable. You know, this outsole can never, it's never going to come off, no delamination, right? So the aesthetic is telling you a certain function. And, you know, that's mission, the BOA, they landed where they were out of function, right? We didn't like, we designed them in a place we started, but they moved uh, with help from BOA and from our athletes. And, you know, where they landed is, um, you know, different than where they started. And, you know, again, the aesthetic of the straps and everything else is really all functionally driven. So I would say our design was, you know, integrating the components and thinking more about assembly and, and so on than it was stylizing. Dave, I don't know if you would characterize it differently. No, it was built. It was a totally equipment built from function first. And we let let that drive the aesthetic, which is the best, the best way to work. When we're thinking about that product brief, did you guys have very specific weights that you're like, this shoe has to be lighter than X? We end up talking a lot about weight on blister, especially maybe when it comes to ski products, the weight of skis, the weight of ski boots. And we have our opinions on that that, well, I argue hard for about going too light on some of these products can actually really take away from the performance and feel of these products, we've actually had much fewer conversations on running shoes and trail shoes. So from talking to designers, were you like, well, there were other more important elements that we were going for in this shoe and weight was maybe, you know, something we were paying attention to, but it was not in like our top one or two. How were you thinking about weight in particular on this first shoe of yours? Well, I would say that, like Kevin said, we, we looked at each element of performance. And so that's what we tried to optimize first. And then the weight, you know, was a result of that. And I think weight was definitely important. Weight is important in running shoes. So it's definitely something that people are paying attention to. But, you know, what I always come back to is it's not really about necessarily lightweight. It's about the right weight. And um, I think you have to look at the race as you want the shoe to be light and you don't want it to feel heavy, but you also need it to have enough support when you're descending or ascending really fast. You need to be have the right weight for that. And, um, you know, if you have something that's too light, that's not giving you the support you need, well, then you're going to not have the fit you need. 
and you're going to lose time and energy on that as well. So weight's a, a, an important part, but it's not the end all be all. It's it's part of the part of the equation. And we were always paying attention to it, but we weren't going to sacrifice something else that could be equally as important um, because, you know, it's it's it really is about the right weight, not just lightweight. Speaking of weight, this SLPDX doesn't only have one BOA dial on it. It's got two. Yeah. Now, seems to me if we really cared first and foremost about weight, you're not going to put two BOA dials on a shoe. Be a perfect example. Yes. BOA dials aren't necessarily heavy, but they do. They are um, obviously going to weigh a little bit more than if you didn't have one on there at all. And that's a perfect example that we get much better fit by having that second BOA dial where we can really regionally zone in on the fit. And for us, that's going to give you a better performance over the course of a race than if you just had one. So it's kind of, you have to measure which is more important, the weight versus that. And we think the fit uh, definitely uh, is more important than the weight in this case. Would you add anything to that, Kev? I would go back to the athletes and say the consistent feedback we've had, and we've offered them alternatives and built alternatives and every time they want the dual boa so and it's it's been pretty consistent and i i think that kind of you know says it all because when they're out there for 13 20 24 hours at a time you know they they know a lot more about that shoe than than we do and so when they tell us that that's the case then you know, that's the answer as far as we're concerned. Hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean, I imagine at least maybe there were some prototypes where there was a single BOA dial and, you know, I've run in shoes with a single dial. I've never run in a shoe with two. Um, so it's interesting to hear you say that effectively, or maybe universally, the athletes liked the dual BOA. They've never had it before. They've never had the ability to like tighten the forefoot down and leave the top loose or vice versa, leave the forefoot super loose and crank down the shoe. And, you know, we see athletes do it completely opposite from each other, but they both love it. In other words, you know, when you have a lace, you're either tight all the way down. And we've seen people get bruising and injuries from that top lace being so tight. And, you know, that might be an effort to get the forefoot tight, but the way that, you know, a typical eye eye stay is constructed, you can't do the zonal thing and so we think it's significant and i think we're also using the highest end boa dial which is another differentiator that you know a lot of people don't know boa at all and then if they do they might know it from a certain level and this one that we're using is the one that you would know from an s-works cycling shoe but that's about it so it turns forward to tighten and you can turn it backwards to loosen so you're not just popping it and then having to reset every time which again on the fly changes are just that much simpler um so it's a you know it's an elevated experience of boa even if you're familiar i don't think we've talked about price yet we should probably do that <laughs> that's right the slpdx i believe retails for 375 dollars. correct now for those listening who are like oh hell no or maybe they think i don't see how you got there now we've talked quite a bit about some of the things already and you know putting a couple boas on a shoe is not an inexpensive proposition. 
but just talk a little bit about the price. It, I mean, the price is really simple. It's an aggregation of all the things that are within the product. And once you aggregate all those things together, you get to the price of what it, what it costs to build it. And some things we haven't touched on that are significant are, are the Carbitex carbon plate that's in there that has flex in one direction and it's stiff in the other. You know, that's an expensive component, but it, it offers an advantage in the in the trail world that you know wasn't out there. So, Carbitex plate, the P-backs, uh, we're using a special supercritical P-backs, you know, and these are things where we can really get into the weeds. But it's really what's happening is we're using these best of the best things. In some cases, things that have never been done, and we're aggregating all those together, and that's why it costs what it costs. We're really, you know. We're using Dyneema for the the moccasin stitching that goes around. We're using Dyneema in our knit, um, which is, you know, a very expensive uh, textile. So, you know, you just start to combine those things. And if you really know footwear and you really know everything that we're using, um, you you actually do understand and um, and it makes a lot of sense. But, yeah, from the outside, if, if you if you don't aren't familiar with everything that we're trying to do, it, it can seem a bit bit extreme, I think maybe on initial read, but, uh, but that is the reason. And, and, and there's really no way around. And it's the reason why other big brands aren't using uh, everything that we are using for that exact reason. (laughs) Yep. I I find it sometimes funny. Um, I mean, we just review products and we say what stuff does and that's our job, but it is kind of funny to me, the, the price question, like some people just get real mad if they're like, that's mm-hmm. stupid, that's too much, that's too much money. And I'm like, I don't know, things can cost what they cost. Companies are allowed to sell products for whatever the hell they want to sell those products for. If that doesn't seem to be the right product for you, don't worry about it. You know, and yet that said, I do think when we're talking about high price point products, probably a good idea for a company to be able to say, listen, here are the reasons why we're getting to this price. Right. And, um, yeah. you know, and on ultimate, and I should add, I think we deliver a different experience. It's not to say that you can't go buy a $120, uh, trail running shoe and get a great trail running experience. What we're delivering is a different, uh, elevated trail running experience. And that's also why we talk more in the terms of equipment versus a shoe because we really took a more of an equipment approach and we do deliver a different experience having that p-backs directly against your foot nobody else is offering that it's a totally different thing and when you when consistently when our elites and more i guess i could say recreational trail runners both when they're in that they experience that and they they sense the different fit sensation they sense the different cushioning they like that you can remove, nobody's ever done a removable carbon plate. They like that you can remove the plate and have two different running experiences. So there's just a lot of things that haven't been done. And if the, if you appreciate that, great. If you don't, that's okay too. There's another maybe product for you. Um, it, it doesn't have to be our product, but we there is a reason why it, it is what it is and why it costs what it costs. And, and we're, you know, we're very open and transparent about it. I'd love to ask you actually about the removable carbon plate. Like, I was like, okay, that's interesting. I mean, and I was trying to think before our conversation, are certain people going to be like, I just simply prefer always running in this shoe without the plate? Or are people really sort of 
using it for certain runs, taking it out for others. What kind of feedback have you received along those lines? That's a great question. And it's been really fascinating for us to get those answers as well, because you design it, you know, with one thing in mind, and sometimes things follow that path and other times they don't. And I think what we've we've seen is that people, a certain subset of the consumers are are playing with the plate and taking it in and out. I think probably most, you know, try it maybe one way or the other, and then they just leave it. And I think generally people are leaving the plate in. But we do find a group that like taking it out and for various reasons. I think we've heard some athletes say on super technical scrambly stuff, they prefer to take the plate out because they get a little bit more, hmm, more feel, feel and better kind of conformability around around rocks. And then we've heard some athletes say that they like taking out the, uh, the plate for like an easy, you know, five miler with a dog or something like that. Um, so a variety of things. And, you know, I think whether you take it in or out or not, again, it's part of what we hope to do in the future. And right now we're learning from our athletes by customizing for them. So based on a given race, um, if we need a, a stiffer option, we can give that to them. If, you know, if they want something softer, you know, we, we, develop that for them and and we're learning about what our offering could be to cover kind of the full range and give people different experiences based on just the plate alone there's another component i want to ask about and that is the recyclability of the slpdx would love to hear one of you speak to what's going on here yeah sure well i mean i think it's important that we designed the slpdx with end end in mind right from you know right at the beginning so we use very small amounts of glue um we actually didn't want to use any glue if we're honest but we had ended up using a very a small amount but the idea is that it's very easy in the sense that you can cut that stitch and you can distance because there's very little amounts of glue you can disassemble all the parts and you can sort them accordingly uh where they need to go from our recyclable recyclability so that's important because uh, if you look at how pretty much all shoes for the most part in the trail space are constructed they're glued they're with you know built with layers of glue and you cannot disassemble those um easily and all those parts cannot be uh, recycled together right rubber is different than than foam uh eva uh and obviously different than textiles which is even different than plastics so you need to be able to separate those parts accordingly our the slpdx is built for that uh right from the start. So it not only does it allow us to customize the product when we're talking about performance features, but it allows us to sit, disassemble it at end of life uh, fairly easily. Kevin, how simple or hard was that from the engineering <laughs> point of view? Well, like Dave said, you know, it was, we didn't get all the way there uh, to where we wanted to be. And I think it's, you know, we're, we're kind of taking that stance where we, sustainability is important to us, you know, and keeping this product as, you know, conscious as we can, but we want to be honest too. We don't want to fall into this kind of fake greenwashing thing and cl making claims that we, we can't back up. Right. So we think of it as a platform and the platform is, 
built in a way that we're open. As soon as we could replace that PBAX with something that was, you know, more eco-friendly, it's a drop-in. It's a pretty simple change for us to make. And likewise with, you know, all those components, I think working with our major suppliers is another reason that we like the breakdown approach because you know, Michelin's a bigger company and I know Bo is working on their solutions. And when we have good solutions in place, then we can, you know, we're easily able to plug in with those uh, with those guys as well. So I think it's, you know, keeping, keeping it really open but in terms of the execution of the platform you know it was a little bit of trickiness but it wasn't you know again we we didn't want to swing too far with crazy solutions so we were trying to work within things we knew um, or kind of knew and uh you know trapping that lower midsole in without using any glue didn't turn out to work exactly as as we had hoped we had a little too much shear and issues so we did have to use some glue that's the example but the platform is there if we can eliminate that problem in another way um, we will we just you know got to take our time and and i think because we're keeping kind of performance top of mind we're keeping that sustainability right behind it we're going to keep on testing and we'll keep on making sure that we we can find those right solutions both on the sustainability and the performance side i think this is a really cool development um certainly in the broader outdoor industry when it comes to products and hopefully beyond the outdoor industry. But I think in a number of product categories, there's a number of companies making some pretty good products. Like we've figured some things out from a design point of view. Um, Certainly if we're thinking about say skis in particular, there's a number of good options out there. I think more than there used to be. And there's we see fewer skis come through where we're just like, this is an abomination. Like you just completely whiffed, right? Um, and I I think that if this is fair to generalize, whether we're talking about skis or ski boots or or mountain bikes or running shoes, I think a cool thing that is as companies really say like where they might be getting with respect to the performance of certain products I think things are going to get a lot more competitive on that sustainability element and consumers will be like, well, I could maybe select from these three or four or five particular products, but this company seems to really be doing legitimate, not greenwashing, but legitimate work when it comes to the sustainability or recyclability or the fixability right of some of these products and and i think it's going to be cool and i really hope that we see companies rewarded for that yeah right i I also like the cooperation we're seeing you know we're seeing some interesting brands getting together i mean i wouldn't have expected adidas and all birds for instance you know to do something around that and you know um so i i think it's going to be good for for the consumer and for for everyone really to have a selection of high performance materials that are more eco-friendly i mean every everybody wants it so um, we're happy to you know be in that mix and and partner with people and including our existing partners and others to do the right thing on on all of that dave did you want to add to that no i just i would just add that uh, I agree with everything you were saying. And the, the only part I would add that as far as Speedland goes, and maybe we've already said it, that we're as we always have sustainability in mind, but we will we will never compromise performance. And I think that's a key, key thing for us as a brand is that we are about hyper performance and uh, we are always going to try and do the right things as far as sustainability goes and as far as um, 
our give back goes as well, which we can touch on in a minute if we want. But the key is we will not compromise performance because that is what we put first. Nice to have clarity from brands. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like here's our one, here's our two. And that's the way it is. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, talk about the give back program. Yeah, I think I think we're pretty unique in that sense that um, I think we've mentioned in the in, uh, along the way here, but we put our athletes at the center of everything we do from testing to relationships. And so when we do our give back, it's a bit more, I guess, grassroots in that we'll take 10% of our profits and we distribute it directly back to our athletes um, within their community. And then our athletes pick what foundations um, they want to support. So if they're in, you know, Don, um, one of our athletes, ultra runner lives in fair play. So he can get back to a foundation within that area um, of the, of the world. And same thing, you know, uh, Dylan Bowman can give back within um, the Portland area where, where he's living or Liz Canty um, where she's living. So, so the, the idea is more like the, the give back is directly back to our athletes and then that directly hits wherever they live. So it's kind of a, a, a local give back in a sense, but it's also very endemic because it goes back to trail related, outdoor related um, endeavors. So it's, it's, it's kind of a whole cyclical nature that we work with them to test the product. We also give our give back through them. So everything um, is revolving around our athletes at Speedland. I understand you have a new model coming out in the hopefully not too distant future. Can we speak to this a little bit? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, our next commission um, would be the, the SLHSV. And so that goes back to our commission idea where that's centered around Liz Canty and uh, Huntsville, uh, Alabama, where she's, uh, you know, cut her teeth on a, on a lot of races and on won a lot of races in that region of the country. And so what we do is we take the product and we put the necessary um, changes in order to optimize it for that region. So um, in this, this case, there's going to be some compound changes on the bottom for wet limestone type technical rock. And um, the boa dials are uh, anodized aluminum, so uh, even increased durability from from where they are now. Um, and then also it's gator compatible. Uh, Liz Candy wears a lot of gators in her races, so uh, it's it's integrated gator system uh, is is pretty cool how you can attach it. And so um, and then it has a lot of her details as well. So that's kind of how we see a, a commission, but that's also the HSV, and that'll that'll come in the kind of April time period. Gotcha. Yeah. Did, did he do good, Kevin? <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Did I, did I miss anything there? And then we have no? some pretty, um, no, some pretty... I... go ahead, Kevin. Well, I was wondering if you were going to talk about something else. Yeah, that's right. Or you can talk about it, but I'll, I'll lead into it and Kevin can. And then we have a pretty exciting product coming after that. That'll come more towards the fall. That's more in the maximal category. So it'll share some similar DNA to where we are right now. But ima uh, imagine a more maximal approach um, where we think we can uh, get after some things in a new way as well. Interesting. <laughs> We've talked around this a bit, but I'd love to hear maybe just a cleaner articulation uh, or answer to this question. Like today, who would you say Speedland Shoes and the Speedland brand maybe is for? who ought to be considering the SLPDX and maybe the HSV and perhaps the new shoe coming down the pike in the fall? 
You want to answer that, Kevin? Well, yeah, I'll answer that. I mean, I think it's any athlete who's, you know, main probably running is, is on, is a trail runner at heart and somebody who's, you know, to whom trail running is important enough that they want to spend a little bit more on equipment uh, for their feet rather than sort of commodity type products. You know, I think we, we're aware that at our price point, we're going to appeal to that high end athlete who's, you know, spending a lot of time in the trail and who believes that better equipment can make their experience better in the mountains. And so we hope to appeal to that. We hope to appeal to people who love gear. You know, we call them the prosumer, people who might not be the fastest, but they love gear and they like to feel like they're keeping up with latest technology, kind of put myself in that category. Um, and so, you know, those those are the probably the two primary groups, the elites who believe they can go faster with better equipment and the prosumer who wants to experience something completely new and trail. And then in terms of the future of Speedland, I mean, given some of the things you've said, namely, our clear number one priority is hyper-performance, have you two, I'm guessing the answer is yes, but have you two discussed, perhaps down the line, bringing price points down on some things? Or do you feel like there's already a kind of fundamental philosophical commitment to, no, like, haven't you been listening? It's about hyper-performance and the things we design will sort of always be sort of at the front lines of innovations and materials and the rest. And so I, we can't really imagine a world where we start to see price points come down a whole lot because, again, haven't you been listening? Where are we here? I, I think the answer is twofold on that one. Yes, we will bring down prices if we can bring down prices. But we also will always be at the front lines of innovation. So it's kind of one of those things where if we see opportunities and we can make smart decision and not compromise the performance um, and bring the build costs down a little bit, we will definitely do it. You know, it's not our goal to keep prices high for the sake of keeping prices high. Like that's actually quite the opposite. But um, we also want to be um, always playing in that innovation space and playing in that space of trying to optimize performance. So um, we will look towards that. But yeah, I wouldn't, we're not just going to bring prices down to bring them down either. Like there's, that's not what this brand is about. This brand is about creating the best of the best. Always. Yeah, I think the the analogy we like to use on the on the business side, it's another automotive one, but, you know, we, we would want to be more like Ferrari than Ford in the sense of very special products, not that many of them. Um, and we'll come down, you know, to a certain level, but not kind of compromising or watering down what the brand stands for this hyper performance notion. So, you know, we, um, we recognize that that means inherently, you know, you're not as, as big and we're okay with that, but the positioning of the brand and, and stuff, we just, we can't compromise that no matter what we do. For people interested in checking out Speedland products and purchasing Speedland products, where should they go? They should go to runspeedland.com. That's our site. Um, you can check out everything on there from our story to the, all the tech. We have videos that go into everything. We have user manuals. I mean, you can go as deep as pretty much you want to go <laughs> learning about Speedland at runspeedland.com. Uh, you can also check us out on, uh, on Instagram. Uh, we put up stuff, you know, most days there, um, mo mostly athlete centric, but, um, 
But again, check us out on Instagram. I would say those are the two main places, right? Yeah. Sounds good. Well, guys, this has been really fun. It's uh, really cool learning more about both of your backgrounds. And I'm always fascinated in how on earth somebody, you know, starts a brand today and why and and how clearly defined are some of their principles and the rest. And so this is all very interesting. And uh, I kind of think given your track records, honestly, when I first started hearing about Speedland, I was like, yeah, I don't know. Um, But hearing about where you've been and what you've done so far, I guess I'd be surprised if there's that many listeners out there thinking I'm totally willing to bet against these two. I, I don't, I don't <laughs> seem like doesn't seem like that's a very safe bet. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how this all unfolds. We definitely. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. But for the, I wouldn't bet against this either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, thanks a lot for the time. Um, we'll stay tuned. Um, I'd love to get some of our reviewers in in some Speedland shoes and and you know and we'll weigh in and see what we think. But uh, mostly, I just want to say best of luck with everything you're doing, and I do really appreciate the the clarity and the intention behind what you're building. And uh, I think brands are very well served to have that kind of clarity these days. I I don't think it tends to work out that well when they're missing that piece. So um, yeah, appreciate you sharing all of the story with us and, and good luck going forward. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I want to say thanks to Dave and Kevin for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.